So if you have your Bibles, join me in Haggai. We've been in Haggai several weeks. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, I preach from the ESV. If you have the large print Bible, I'm on page 1006. <clears throat> Haggai chapter 2. This series, this has been pretty challenging, uh, pretty challenging series. Uh, if you're new to the church, my sermon outline is on the back of the bulletin. You just flip to the back page. So last week we looked at the new temple. And we noted that God will be glorified. And Haggai mentions, once more I will shake the heavens and the earth. Now, the shaking, I related to the shaking of the kingdoms. Kingdoms come and go, uh, <clears throat> just kind of refreshing our memory here, that the Israelites were in Babylonian captivity. The Persians rescued them or actually knocked out the Babylonians, and they became the preeminent inter, uh, kingdom at the time. But then after that, Alexander the Great comes along, he knocks the Persians out, and of course when we get Alexander the Great is probably the beginning, the beginning of God moving during that intertestamental period, the 420 some odd years between the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He becomes a key figure, and when I did my introduction to the New Testament, which was supposed to be, <laughs> supposed to be five weeks and it wound up to be 18 months, but um, rather lengthy study, he becomes instrumental in ushering in the Savior and his kingdom. And of course, Rome takes over from the Greeks. So last week, God said that, and, and it can also apply, I brought up Hebrews 12, 26, and 27, where the author of Hebrews quotes Haggai. And there applies it, the shaking, to the judgment. The things that are shaken will be loosed, which is a sign of judgment, and those who are found in Christ will not be shaken. So it can refer both to God taking down kingdoms and bringing kingdoms up. And that goes on all the way. God has a plan, and we can trust him with it, no matter what's going on in our, in our world. And then in verse 7 last week, God said, I will fill this house with glory. That was a reference to God himself residing. And as they build the temple, God will come in. His presence will be there. The priests will go in through the holy place. They will do their ministry there. And then one priest will go in to the holy of holies. And not only will God be glorified in 2, 6, and 7, but he will reign in 2, 8, and 9. And we learned in verse uh, 8 that God owns everything. The gold and silver is his. And by the way, remind you that God has your finances too. God always comes through when you need it. Lastly, we looked at this new temple. There will be shalom, verse 9. Shalom meaning contentment. Can mean blessing, could obviously mean blessing. Uh, that was appropriate back in the day when a priest or anybody would say a blessing. They would say, may the shalom of Yahweh be with you. 
But when I looked at those words, it didn't quite fit that context. What it did fit was contentment and salvation in that place. In the temple of God, there will be salvation. Now, immediately following this, Haggai begins what I see as his third message. And that third message was on December 18th, 520 B.C., in the month of Kislev. Kislev, we know, is December. And from the adjustments of the calendar through the years, scholars have arrived at December 18th. So we know exactly when this third message was sent out to the people. Also, this would be several, well, 600, 700 years later, uh, this would be the start of Hanukkah. And so this was a, an, an added ceremony for the Jews. It had no, uh, no bearing on what Haggai had to say here. So on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. It is no longer by the hand of prophet. It came by Haggai the prophet. So here we see that Haggai has already established himself as the spokesman for God. And so now the people are listening to Haggai, realizing that he has the message from God and he is delivering it to the people. Now, as we stated, December 18th, 520 B.C. It's kind of fascinating how when they adjust these calendars, what it really looks like for us today. So it's right, well, it's seven days before Christmas. At least that's the date that we put for the birth of Christ. I would put it closer to March or April, but that's neither here nor there. So the early rains, you remember the graph that I gave, the early rains would start in October. It would start October, November, December. During this period, it was very crucial because now they're putting in the winter crops. And they would put them in and be done by around the 15th of December. So the time frame now from September to December is about three months. September, October, November, December. A little three months, three and a half months, whatever you want to call it. Something else significant happens during this period. And that is, Zechariah begins his ministry. If you go look at, so you have Haggai on one track, and now you have God raising up Zechariah. In the eighth month, which would have been November, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. So God has a two-pronged approach going as Zechariah will begin his ministry and Haggai will begin to fade out of the picture. So this is the situation, December 18, 520 B.C. All of this starts taking place. There's work. They've, they've had to actually probably stop work on the temple because they knew they had to get that, uh, that winter crop in. And then, of course, January it rains more, February, March, April, May, and then June it starts tapering off again. So these are critical moments. These are critical moments in the nation of Israel. And God's, God is, it's, it's fascinating. God is moving this thing exactly to where he wants it to be. 
Now, Haggai calls on the people. The Levitical priests are to be questioned in 11 to 13. There's 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 a method to my madness. Just hang on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest, this is the people, ask the priest about the law. And this word law does not have a definite article in it. Therefore, the law, not specifically to the Torah, but no doubt the priests who were asked the questions would have referred to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which, by the way, every child knew by the time, well, eight, eight years old, nine years old, they understand the Torah and, and they could recite large portions of it. So, but no doubt, even though it may not be a direct reference, we all understand the Torah, uh, like with a definite article, what I mean by that is Moses wrote in the law. Moses would be the definite article, but Haggai puts it in a general sense. So the priest, the priest becomes the central focus of all religious activities in the nation of Israel. The priests were critical. They were the heartbeat of the Jewish culture and authority in Israel over all the worship of the temple. Um, Richard Taylor, it was to the prophets that the Lord communicated fresh disclosures of the divine will, either for their own age, and then some prophets prophesied beyond that. But it was the priests who were recognized as being uniquely qualified to provide ruling on matters of cultic purity by virtue of their role as trusted custodians of the Mosaic law. So naturally, God wants to know, and in Malachi, the priests become corrupt. We'll we'll get into that in just a minute. But here you have the moment where Haggai wants to know from the priest what their ruling is, on this issue, by the way, speaking of Malachi, this actually spoke to me this this week. This this text here, Malachi two, seven and nine. For the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge, for from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from my way, and by your teaching you have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So it really becomes imperative to get these priests to understand exactly what Haggai is saying from the Lord so that they can begin to make corrections and changes as the nation worships. So what is this scenario? Well, the scenario is given to us in verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches with the fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food. Priest, let me ask you this question. Does it become holy? The priest answered, no. So, the priests were asked to adjudicate this scenario. They knew from the Old Testament that it is very hard to transfer holiness. There were occasions and there were times you could say yes and no. 
But ultimately, in a broad sense, the answer is no to that question. But there were specific circumstances when holiness could be transferred, but it was mostly in the sense of the worship of God. There's a reason why Haggai is doing this, and we'll, we'll explain it in just a minute. So the first thing is, what is meant by holy meat? Well, the word is quadesh, quadesh, and that means simply set apart. So the meat that would be offered in a fellowship offering to God was something that was set apart. It was set apart and consecrated to God. Now, if you go back and you study the history, this can refer to the Sabbath, it can refer to the temple area, to parts of the sacrifice, it can refer to the ceremonial utensils used in the worship of God, or it can also refer to a period of fasting. All of this would be set apart, consecrated to God. So when, when they would go on a fast, the whole purpose of that fast would be to honor God and to glorify him. Now, the question that they answered, is it possible for holiness to be transmitted to somebody else? The overarching answer to that question is no. On rare occasions, holiness could be transferred. Let me give you one example. In Exodus 29:21, he, uh, God told Moses, then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the atoning oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his son's garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his son his sons and his son's garment with him. So there was, there were rare occasions when God commanded that the blood be sprinkled on the people and they would become holy. Therefore, there was a transference. But those times were rare. Again, the overarching theme is this. Holiness is not contagious. In other words, I couldn't touch Audrey and make her holy. Holiness is not transferable that way. You can't simply just say, you are holy. It doesn't work like that. And the priest knew that. So the consecrated meat that was offered, that was set apart from God, even if it touched some type of element, like the bread, it touched the bread, is it holy? No. Because it can't be transferred. This, this becomes important for what he's getting ready to say to the nation of Israel. Then Haggai said a second question. If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? We will default now to Numbers. Numbers 19.11 Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. The priest answered, notice, the priest answered and said, it does not become, uh, it, it does become unclean. Unclean is the Hebrew word for tamay, and it means defiled in the sense of worship. So when we look at this, 
we have to come to this conclusion. Holiness cannot be transferred. But ungodliness and sinfulness can be. You think of a church where an unchecked sin in the church can spread to the entire community, where it, it can affect. It doesn't work the other way with holiness. Holiness is something that we have inwardly. It's something that when we trust in Jesus Christ, we become holy by virtue of our union with him. But sin, and you particularly think about the church, you get one person in the church that has an agenda and they begin working their way through the church, their sin can come in contact with others, cause them to stumble, and before long you have a church that is not, that is not unified, but it is divided, and you have factions within the church waging war against a certain other faction in the church. Seven out of ten times, those factions are aimed at the deacons and the pastors. And I made that number 7 out of 10. Sometimes it's not. But as I've been a pastor now for 33 years, most of the time, anytime there's a problem in the church, it centers on the deacons and the, and the pastor. And so you have to, you, we have to be careful in this event. And so Haggai is saying, look, <laughs> look, you can't touch somebody and they become holy. But you can transfer sin much, easy, much more easily than you can holiness. Only on certain occasions can that happen. I know when we do ordinations, we lay our hands on the candidate. That's not for transference, but that simply means that we are setting apart this person for the work of God. Only God can make a person holy. I cannot do that. I can guide you. I can lead you. I can teach you in the ways of God the best that I know how. Or a deacon can do that for you. Or maybe a, a godly mentor can do that for you. But ultimately, the person has to decide if they're going to follow God or not. This leads Haggai to this summation, the warning in Haggai 2.14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they have offered, there is unclean. Wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Didn't the nation just repent? Yes, they did. Look at verse 15. Now then, consider from this day forward... So this is more of a warning to the nation of Israel. I don't often quote a female scholar. Uh, she's well known in theological circles. She was never ordained as a pastor, but she wrote a, uh, a commentary on this, and I thought what she wrote was very good. Again, she ministered, uh, was one of the taught missionary, female missionaries, and uh, anyway, it's, it's really a great, a great quote. She wrote this, Israel had originally been set apart, just like the meat, for the Lord and was therefore holy. But the nation had been defiled and everything it touched, including its offerings, became unclean. The ruined temple 
a witness to sins of negligence, stood as a corpse in their midst. So Haggai is saying, this is what it looked like before you repented. The temple was not being rebuilt. You went home, you, you did your own houses, you made sure that your fields were ready, but then God said, wait a minute, wait a minute, my house remains unbuilt, therefore, whatever you put your hands to, it's going to come to less or nothing than what you've actually worked. So as we think about us today, we think about our priorities. What is our priorities? Long time ago, when I was going through, it was a really long time ago, when I was going through ordination, one of the pastors encouraged me to put God first, family second, church third. Because if those first two are messed up, you can't possibly pastor the house of God. And there's been times that I have failed, Audrey, where the church has taken precedent over. No pastor is perfect. We all make mistakes. I was once told it's a bigger man that can announce he's made a mistake and move on. But there were, there were times that I put the church ahead of her. And so that was a violation of what that pastor had told me to do. So what do we do? I mean, this is obviously a, a very difficult text to try to apply, but I think it can apply. Um, <clears throat> we are holy priesthood. When we come to the New Testament, we are priests. You no longer need a pastor to bring you into the presence of God. Why is that? Because you are a holy priesthood. Yeah, we have in Southern Baptist, uh, in our doctrines, the priesthood of the believer. You can interpret scripture for yourself as long as it doesn't go outside what the Southern Baptists believe in doctrine. Now, the verse that I'm looking at right here, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when we think about Haggai, it was the priest that took care of all the ceremonial, the sacrificial, all the elements that go into the worship of God. He would make intercession for the priest. But when we come to the, uh, for the people, when we come to the New Testament, we go to God directly ourselves. And I want to note four things. First of all, as priests, we are living stones. And this living stones means individually, individually cut. So when you look at this, when you look at this picture of the stone wall, you see some stones are different sizes, different shapes, but they all fit together. And we are living by the fact that we are connected to Jesus Christ. Every believer is connected to Jesus Christ, and therefore, based on that connection, we become living. It is a living stone. We are workable where God is shaping us to fit into the kingdom of God, and that work continues. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the, uh, until the day that you die. 
God will constantly be working on you to fit you into the kingdom of God. He's working on you now. And the purpose of that work is so that you will fit within the kingdom of God. So when a believer says, I have no place. God doesn't have a plan for me. That is so wrong. God has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. Ultimately, that purpose is to glorify God and to help the church and to share the gospel. Every believer has a place in this church. Every one of you has a place in this church. And like I said, this word stone, lethos, is a piece of rock that is shaped. That's what that word means, shaped. It is shaped, and it, we are not the ones shaping it. God is the one shaping your life. So he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. Until you go to be with him. Secondly, as priest, us, as priest, you are being built as a spiritual house, not a physical house. We have places of worship all over America. We are in this building, this sanctuary this morning, which was uh, started back in 1956, culminated, I believe, my memory's right, 1959, which was the year that I was born. <laughs> so it's been here a while. And only God, you know, brings stuff. You ever notice God just brings things into place? 1959, I was born, and I don't know the exact month that they actually finished it. It might have been September, but God knew that day that someday down the road, I would pastor this church, and I think I'm in my 14th year. You haven't, you haven't thrown me out yet, but... Um, D. Edmund Hebert, I, it needs to be stressed that this is a spiritual house. We are not an organization. We are an organism. An organism is living. Everybody in here makes up the church. You are First Baptist Church of Tolono. You are being built up. The verb denotes a present continuing reality. The implied builder, of course, is God. God is the one who is building this church. He is ultimately the one that adds to this church. He is ultimately the one that subtracts from this church. He is ultimately the one that will bless us. And I think that God will bless us as long as we stay focused on Christ. When the church and the pulpit deviates from the word of God, trouble will ensue. Newt Larson, one of my friends who pastored a mega church uh, in Akron, Ohio, actually Akron, Green, <laughs> the numbers were staggering. I think there was 8,000 at Green and there were 18,000 at uh, Akron, at the chapel in Akron. And he told me over a cup of coffee, he said, we actually had to pay people to do ministries in the church because 
all of those people showed up for one hour on Sunday, did not get involved with the work of ministry. And so Newt said, I would say 95% of the people that were doing ministry in the church were paid staffers because they couldn't get. And so I'm going to tell you, we are so blessed here. We are so blessed. If we had to pay staff, we'd be in deep trouble. But we have so many good people here, you all, in volunteer positions, doing the work of ministry. Uh, your pay is the benefit of knowing that you are working for the kingdom of God. And I, I appreciate that. I, I want you to know that. I appreciate it. You could be somewhere else on Sunday, but you choose to be here. And by the way, let me go ahead and give a shout out. Thank you for supporting Vacation Bible School. These kids that come in, these kids that come in, they will also be future of building the house of God. And I wasn't raised. There's, when I was a kid growing up, we only went to church at Christmas and Easter. There were other times I went to church with my friend Larry McCabe. Uh, went to Sunday school, and I do remember some of the... Uh, papers that we looked at and we would color I was younger then but you know what that that's still there anything that you do in the classroom these kids are going to remember and it all becomes part of being built up as a spiritual house where these kids someday 30 years from now I'm probably with Jesus 30 years from now there may there'll be a new wave that, that comes up. Yesterday, uh, Audrey and I were in uh, Audrey and I were in Villa Grove. We went to eat at the Beehive, which is run by uh, it's called the Beehive Corner Beehive. It's it's run by veterans, so I wore my veteran hat and uh, uh, I remembered a couple of years ago. Holly said, "Dad, you have." Uh, George Frazier buried over in Villa Grove. And so yesterday after that, Audrey and I went over. Uh, kind of funny, we up and down the graves looking for it. And I said, wait a minute, I got a picture on my phone. I'll just kind of figure out where we are in the landscape. And so uh, found George Frazier. Not, not George, not that kind of George. Uh, George Frazier was my first cousin three generations removed. That is right, right? Three generations removed. It was my great-great-great-grandfather's brother, cousin, and it comes down the line to me. Guess what? Do you know where George Frazier preached? Tolono. He, pre he was a traveling preacher. He was a, uh, it was totally bizarre. And then I, I did the calculations in math, when he was here, 75 years later, moi, I show up. But he was a preacher. I'll, I'll say this. The Fraser line is littered with preachers. I don't know. How many? We had quite a few. We, I trace, I'm a 
a descendant of William Tyndale. I am a descendant of William Tyndale. There's, there's three preachers in, in his realm. But then there's also the other Frasers from the other lines that come down, also the Cooks and some others. But let's put it this way. I don't know why God picked the Fraser line for preaching. All I know is that day God called me, I knew I had no other choice. So it's kind of interesting. You, you go to breakfast, and there's actually several Frasers over there buried, which is ironic because we're from West Virginia and Virginia. Very rare. He was a drummer. George Frazier was a drummer in the Civil War. He was a drummer boy in the Civil War. He was called to preach when he was 20. Wow, it's crazy. But all of this, all of this, God is building a spiritual house. It's not a physical. It's not about a building. This is about God doing a spiritual work in a spiritual way. When we, it, we should focus on the building, we should make sure that things, uh, things are, are clean and acceptable for worship, but it is not about the building. This is about God using the people to build a spiritual building. We have Southern Baptists here in the area. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. God is doing a work. The Edmund Hybert reminds us that ultimately the builder is God. Number three, as priest, we are a holy priesthood. You ready for this? Hagios, holy. Guess what that means? Set apart. Which filters down to the same word that Haggai used for the meat, for the sacrifices. But in this case, we're already holy. But that holiness cannot be transferred because Holiness is only transferred by God to the person. So part of this, being a holy priesthood, is that we share the gospel so that others may be touched by God so that their lives can be transformed into his image. And it is a difficult task. The priesthood, hiratomai, hiratomai. Listen to this. It really does put it in a new perspective. The role of being a priest in performing ceremonies. That's you. In a sense. Peter uses the priesthood because he realizes that there's been a change in the situation and circumstance. There has been a change. We are no longer just people. We are priests. Each of us can go to God. Isn't, isn't it wonderful? You, you, you text a friend and you say, please pray for me. And you know that that other priest is praying for you. You are priest. In the sense that you have access to God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Doesn't mean you can't come to me and, or the deacons and we won't pray for you. Certainly we will. There's not a deacon here that won't sit down and pray with you over any situation or circumstance. And I will pray with you as, as well. So as priest, let me ask you a question. How are you doing? 
How are you doing? Are you clean? Are you touching unclean things? That was big for the priest. The priests in the Old Testament didn't touch unclean things because it made them unclean. Ironically, when we talk about the priesthood, in the Old Testament, when the priest felt like he was called by God, he would go through a purification process. And when the priest came out the other side, he was a priest. The priest could operate in two realms, clean and unclean. But the priest could never be unpriested. The priest could operate in limited capacity, unclean, but he could never be unpriested. When we talk about the priesthood of the believer, when you trust in Jesus Christ and you become a priest, you can never be unpriested. You are saved by the blood of Christ. You have been redeemed by his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection. You are a living, breathing entity of God. You have been redeemed. You can never go back to being unsaved. And by the way, you can only be saved as many times as Christ died on the cross. He died once for all. And when you trust in that death, the atonement that Christ covers your heart and, and floods you with the forgiveness of God, you can never be unsaved. But you can serve him in an unclean fashion. And we have the same choice. We can either seek holiness. Now, let me say this. None of us are perfect. None. Not one. The New Testament says we all stumble in many ways. But <laughs> we seek the things of God and we seek to follow him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength and with all of our might. We seek to follow him. And sometimes in our lives we stumble and we don't look like the priest that we should be. But that's us. Number four, as priests, all of us collectively, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Anytime you do anything, VBS, Sunday school, preaching, teaching, finance committee, um, hospitality, anything that we do in this church is a spiritual offering to God. The praise team, when you come up here and you lead us in worship, that is a offering to God. So one thing you've got to guard against, one thing that we have to guard against is to think of our own self-importance where we are somehow better. I am replaceable. The praise team is replaceable. Deacons are replaceable. We all must remember that we serve God with all of our hearts and that our role as Christians, as priests, is to offer these sacrifices and say, God, I'm going to use the talents that you gifted me for. I'm going to use them not for me, 
but I'm going to use them for you and to glorify you. When you do that here at the church, it's an offering. When you give money, that is an offering. It's a financial offering. Anything that you do connected with your Christian life is an offering. So when you wake up tomorrow morning, think about that. I am a priest. How should a priest act in a fallen world? How should I act when I go into Tolono, Champagne, Savoy, when I go to the mall, when I go to Walmart, wherever it may be? You are a priest. You represent Christ. So many times, I don't know why this happens to me, but it seems to happen in parking lots an awful lot. I just get an overwhelming sense to pray for somebody. And particularly when I see these people on the side of the road that are decimated, probably by drugs, to pray for them. Brothers and sisters, our mission, our whole mission, bar none, is to offer spiritual sacrifices to him. That's a priest mission. And we need to watch how we live our lives. It doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly. You're going to make mistakes. And I'm going to tell you this as your pastor. When you sin and you stumble and you make mistakes, you just ask for forgiveness. And it's done. But you can never be unpriested. I would hate to live my life. And in, in, in some sense, I would hate to live my life in an unclean manner and then go before Christ. We're not judged on our sin, but we're judged by what we have done with Christ and the body. I can't remember the name of the singer. When we stand in your presence while I dance. Who is that? Mercy Me sings that song. So exciting to stand before the throne of Christ. But that's us. Our goal is to just offer acceptable sacrifices. Not do something to be noticed by men that gets shot down. But to do something and say, you know what? Most of the greatest rewards are going to be done when nobody knows that you've done them. Let me say that again. The deeds that are not known except to God. When you pray for this pastor during the week, that's a reward. When you pray for the homeless man, that is a reward only you and God know about. When you offer money blindly to a particular program in the church, that's known between you and God. Those are the great rewards because there is no hay. As priests, we don't operate that way. We want to follow Christ with our lives. Thomas Schreiner, we should not limit the sacrifices here to any one item. Totally agree. It applies to everything that we do. For everything that is pleasing to God is probably included. Peter spoke generally and comprehensively of all that believers do by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. In, indeed, 
not any and every sacrifice is pleasing to God, but only those offered through Jesus Christ. That's the key. Because I can outwardly look like, well, I'm given a great offering, but inwardly know that the motive was wrong in doing it. And in so doing, I, I might fool men, but I don't fool God. I would be... George Frazier was born in 1845. Uh, it would be interesting, fascinating. I read some articles on him. He was called the man with the silver tongue because he was a great orator and preached at a lot of churches around here, so I'm following in a pretty big shadow. But I'd like to know, and someday I probably will, it's just bizarre how God works. That's all I've got for today.